Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And this episode, we'll be discussing the topic of face transplants. I am so excited for this episode because in full transparency, I know nothing about face transplants. Nothing. Love your honesty. Yeah. Zero. (laughs) Um, But what I do know is that this falls under the bracket of visible differences, which we've covered many times on the podcast before. But as a recap, just as a quick definition, a visible difference or appearance altering condition can be a result of a congenital condition or abnormality. Also known as birth defects as well. So for example, an an example that we often use is a cleft lip or palate. But visible difference can also be a result of an illness, a result of surgery or an accident or injury. Yeah, definitely. And on the note of full transparency, I actually knew nothing about face transplants prior to doing this episode either, Nadia. So, I, I mean, let's be honest here. We're learning too. <laughs> um, and if you would like to find out more on the topic of visible differences, like Nadia just described, we have many on our playlist, such as resilience and visible differences, visible differences and romantic relationships, and burn injuries and appearance, just to name a few. Yeah, we've got a whole range there, um, but we will let you, our listeners, peruse our archive. Like that is a great idea, Nadia. And to also update our listeners, Nadia and I are still recording separately in our homes. Um, in England, there's a current lockdown that's gone back since the 31st of October, wasn't it? And I feel yeah. like it was the 5th of November. I think oh. it was a, bit, a bit later. You're in Ireland, so a bit different. (laughs) That's true. In Ireland, it was the 21st of October, so even prior to that. Um, So yeah, that's that's right. It was the week after Halloween. Um, Yeah, Mm. and although we would have hoped to have been able to record safely together in person at some point, um, I guess like many of our plans, that will have to wait. Hopefully a Christmas special that can be in person. Although if not, I guess it'll have to be mulled wine at home. I'll be back in England soon. So yes. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait to be recording together. And I just keep thinking of our Christmas records before when we've had our mulled wine. Did we have mulled cider one year? I feel like we might have done. (laughs) We did. I brought in mulled cider. That was so good. (laughs) And we had our Christmas hats. That were very itchy, by the way, but we persevered on that front very itchy I got very hot um but you know it it was it was great and actually taken for granted so I'm very pleased we have those memories (laughs) I know good good memories anyway sidetracking a little bit so to pull it back we hope all our listeners whether you're in lockdown or not are doing okay it's been a difficult old year and if you're currently in lockdown and feeling anxious we have an episode called Managing Body Image and Food Wobbles During Lockdown, which you may want to check out if you haven't already. Yeah, great. That was so lovely. And on that note, I think we should get started with this episode. Yeah, let's. 
So on this episode, we will be discussing both the history and ethics of facial transplantation, which we will do with the help of three guests. Firstly, we will have Dr. Faye Bound Alberti, a historian, and then we'll be joined by CAR's former co-director and emeritus professor, Nikki Rumsey OBE, and Dr. Alex Clark, both of which have been on the podcast previously. I'm so looking forward to this episode, but before we get to the details, let's define what a face transplant is. Yeah, on it, Nadia. So um, a face transplant is the replacement of either part, known as a partial face transplant, or all of a face provided by a viable donor, and that donor will be deceased, obviously. Um, A facial transplantation is a very complex operation, which will include a whole host of important people like surgeons and months and months of planning, psychologists, potentially. And the surgery itself can last up to and over 16 hours. Actually, one surgery lasted over 30 hours. So you can imagine how much time goes into that and will include the patient having to undergo intense post-treatment and a lifelong commitment to immune-suppressant medication to stop the facial transplant being rejected by the body. Wow, that's a lot. There's just so much to unpack there. So we've got the detailed planning and inclusion of the large interdisciplinary team prior to surgery, and then we've got the consequences post-surgery. Exactly. And these are only like a couple of factors to consider here but we won't go into that too much because we're going to end up repeating ourselves and I think that we should leave it to our guests who are going to explain that brilliantly. Yeah totally agree and and also just to say there's the actual surgery itself which um, as you said could go up to to 30 hours which is quite extraordinary. So to help us understand more about the history of facial transplants we are joined by Dr Faye Bounderberti. Faye is currently a reader of history and co-director of the Centre for Global Health Histories at the University of York and in 2019 became one of the first UK Research and Innovation Future Fellows to undertake critical research into the emotional history and ethics of faith transplants in a project titled About Faith. Along with this, Faye has published a series of books, one titled Matters of the Heart, History, Medicine and Emotion, which discusses the notion of the heart and selfhood. Yeah, so basically Faye is the perfect person to ask when it comes to questions regarding the history of face transplants and even more. So let's hear from Faye. Brilliant. Hi Faye, thank you so much for joining us on Appearance Matters to Podcast. It's lovely to have you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So the first kind of question to get us started on this topic is I'd like you to start by telling us a bit more about the history of facial transplants and how they developed both in the UK and potentially more globally too. Yeah. So by way of context, I'm a historian of emotion and medicine and the body. And my work for some decades now has been looking at the ways in which medical treatments have developed and medical understandings of the body have taken place and what they reveal about social and ethical belief systems. And I got really interested in face transplants when I realised that although they'd become a form of surgical innovation, there hadn't really been very much research into them. There's been quite a lot of work on World War I and World War II when we have techniques of facial reconstruction 
uh, being developed in the UK by people like Harold Gillies and Archibald McKindo. Um, but face transplants themselves didn't start until 2005. So the research that I've done so far shows that all around the world we have discussions about face transplants at an earlier stage and some potential developments in this area from the 1990s in the UK and the US. Uh, but the first face transplant, which was a partial transplant, took place in France in 2005 and it was on the body of Isabelle Dinois, who was a woman who was savaged by her dog while she was unconscious. Um, and when the transplant took place, there was a lot of media interest, a lot of concern. And to this point, there had been ethical discussions about what does it mean to transplant a face? So this, the capability of facial transplant was in place, but it really needed somebody to do it to change the ways in which the debate was taking place. Since then, there's now been 47 face transplants around the world, um, particular developments in the US, in Finland, in France. We haven't had one yet in the UK, uh, and that's part of what I'm researching. And those transplants have been variable in terms of their degree of transplantation. We don't have a great deal of um, data collected on psychological outcomes and we have limited data on the actual surgical outcomes. So that's one of the things that the About Face project at the University of York is set up to address really. Great yeah and I was going to talk to you a bit more about the current project About Face so I was wondering if you could describe that and also a bit about how it came about really. Yeah so the understanding the history of face transplants for me it followed on quite naturally from my work into the emotional history of the body and my interest in facial expressions and how and where, why they convey emotion. Um, so the face is a very important communicative organ. It identifies us legally and socially, but it's also really important in, um, in showing how we feel and in communicating to others. And that really interested me along with what does it mean to change a face? Given that we now can surgically transfer faces like organs, what does it mean about how we feel about the face? Does it have have psychological impacts on the family, on uh, the donor family? How does it feel for the individual concerned? Um, so really asking the kinds of questions that are central to humanities, you know, what does it mean? And then asking them within a context of quite radical surgical innovation. And what I've discovered mostly at the moment is just how many different issues are involved. So we tend to think about, in the history of medicine, we think about surgical innovation as being about developing a technique and then it becomes applied. But really there's so much more about financial structures, the cultures of teams, the roles of individuals in championing a, a cause, a desire to do the treatment and so on. Um, so it's a very complex uh, cluster of questions that's emerging. Yeah, it does seem like there's lots to tease apart there in that in that conversation and so much to consider. And I was wondering, I know you mentioned earlier about really considering the psychosocial implications as well as yeah, the face transplant itself. I was wondering, why do you think it's important to research the history of face transplants within the UK, but also within that interdisciplinary approach and combining different yeah angles towards this topic? Yeah, I've always been interested in interdisciplinary research. I think that if we look at something like face transplant through a variety of different lenses, including 
gender theory, sociology, anthropology, art history, history, we end up with a much more rich understanding of what the surgical innovation means that if we're only looking at it in terms of how a technique becomes developed or how immunosuppressants become involved. Um, and I really think that interdisciplinary approaches are necessary to understand the impact of something like face transplants culturally. It's very hard to get funding for this kind of work, though, which is why I was really glad that the UKRI Future Leaders Scheme um, came through for me, because most funding schemes are, are very much situated in individual disciplines. So despite the fact that we have this focus uh, in the funding councils and the UK government saying do interdisciplinary research, it's quite hard to get it funded. Yeah, I, I could imagine. And it's great that you've got this opportunity to really look yeah. into it. I think just also leading back to something you mentioned earlier about um, the UK having never done a face transplant as of yet. And there being like 47, I think you said, wasn't it? Um, I wondered historically why that might be or your thoughts on that generally. Well, we have an article that we've just submitted, which is about this, um, because the history of face transplants in the UK is fascinating. We have the skills are there and the desire to do it is quite is there quite early on, and certainly before 2005. Um, but there was an embargo, an effective embargo placed on face transplants by the Royal College of Surgeons. Um, and what's really interesting about that is that though the Royal College of Surgeons is um, it's it's an advisory rather than a regulatory body. The belief by the Royal College of Surgeons Working Party Committee was that simply not enough was known about the impact of face transplants at a psychosocial level. So that's a really interesting reminder, actually, against this backdrop of the desire to be first, that we really need do need to pause and think about the ethical and psychosocial meanings of things. So the article that we have uh, written really situates the UK experience within that broader international history. And of course, we still haven't had a face transplant in the UK, which connects to issues about NHS funding. Um, amongst other things, and also reflects some questions over the efficacy of face transplants in the long term. We're also organising a policy lab with um, with the King's Policy Institute to bring people together from across a wide variety of disciplines uh, and stakeholders, so from surgeons to policymakers to people living with facial difference, to ask the question of why, if it hasn't happened yet, what would it require to make it a viable uh, a viable option? And I think we'll have some interesting answers from that. Definitely, that sounds very interesting. And and on the note of the the Royal College of Surgeons, we've actually um got Professor Nikki Rumsey on this episode as well, to, along with Dr. Alex Clark, who kind of worked in opposing teams at the time on those um yeah on face transplants, which is interesting. So it's great that you've mentioned that because that ties in quite nicely with with that point as well. And I find it quite interesting given the history, but also I'd like to ask you about what you foresee this research having and also just the broad topic of what you're doing and the the whole point of how this might be going in the future face transplants you in the UK but also more globally as well like what that might mean um in many implications yeah well, in terms of face transplants, we're anticipating and hoping that this work, because it brings together so many different stakeholders, so Nikki and Alex are both on our advisory board, uh, which is wonderful for us, and we're also working 
with surgical teams around the world, especially in the US um, and in Finland and in France, uh, and with six different teams in the UK and NHS Blood and Transplant. So part of what we're doing is looking at the development of face transplants as a form of innovation, trying to encourage data sharing, trying to bring together comparative analysis of what's working and what's not, um, to, to really help shape a framework for best practice that can consider these historically informed ideas about uh, what psychological well-being looks like. Um, on a broader level, of course, this connects to all areas of surgical innovation because there's always a moment in history where a procedure is considered absolutely cutting edge and what are the ethics around it and how does society feel about it so on a broader level it also asks questions about the point at which surgical innovation or any form of medical innovation gets the green light what are the kind of cultural issues involved and what are the cultural implications what's really a, a core of what we're doing is making sure that we are involving people who live with facial difference um very often they are not asked how they feel about the development of these kinds of procedures. So one of the reasons why the project is so um, engaged and engaging is that it is about juggling all of these different interests and needs and perspectives to try to have a more nuanced discussion about what is involved in face transplants. I completely agree. I think involving the affected group in any sort of research or any sort of committee is so fundamental because yeah if you're not getting that voice heard then you're you're really not representing the group who you're actually trying to include and target yeah so, absolutely very very great point such a fundamental thing and um so I mean that kind of was mainly what we wanted to discuss and it's great to hear hear your points I do also have an additional question which is not related to face transplants but we do ask guests on our podcast this question um it's related to cake so it's it's something that we enjoy here at the, well, not here but usually <laughs> at the center for appearance research we have cake morning which actually happens on a thursday and we would usually when we have lovely guests in like yourself we would also have cake and we love to ask what kind of cake would you like to bring if we physically could attend a cake morning? Oh, that is such a great question. <laughs> I think it's always going to be chocolate cake. The bottom line is it's always going to have to be chocolate cake. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I also work on loneliness and we're doing a project at the moment on loneliness and facial difference. But one of the things about doing everything virtually, of course, we miss out on all these sensorial pleasures like cake. So I shall be thinking about chocolate cake for the rest of the day. Oh, apologies <laughs> that I've put that in your brain. But um, chocolate cake is a great shout. And also, I've, I do agree that when it's not quite the same when you don't have the cake with the community that you share it with. Yeah. A slice yeah. of cake is, is nice on your own but also yeah. yeah it's great when you share it with others I love mint custard with chocolate cake as well very random but oh, yeah I've never ever experienced mint custard I'm not I'm, sure that I want to I know I mean it actually links back to my school childhood times they used to do uh, okay. chocolate kind of style shortbread and then mint custard which I wow yeah <laughs> I had great school dinners, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's lovely. You could bring that at any point, Faye, if um, we are able to in the future. Please bring as much chocolate cake as you would like. <laughs> and yeah, so just before we do wrap this up, I want to just check, is there anything else that you wanted to add, Faye? Anything that we, yeah, we didn't talk about maybe? 
Oh, yes, please. So at the moment, uh, the About Face project is participating in the Being Human Festival, which is uh, a celebration of the humanities that takes place annually. So do check out our website, aboutfaceyork.com. We have a series of events there, including videos and conversations of people talking about how they feel about face transplants. Um, so we'd love for people to, to log on and get involved. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And more importantly, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your thoughts as well today, Faye. Really thank you. A real pleasure to talk to you. So honestly, I said at the beginning of this episode, and even to Faye, before I started, I knew very little about this topic. And before I started looking into and researching for this episode, it was a very interesting topic and I do like the point Faye said about needing more research and information on the psychosocial aspects in order to really learn the impact this kind of surgery can have long term beyond the surgery itself. Absolutely and on the topic of psychosocial impact I think this is the ideal time to move straight on to our next guests who are perfectly placed to tell us about the psychosocial impact of face transplants and give us even more insights on this fascinating topic. For sure. So, to introduce our next guests, we have Professor Murata Nicola Rumsey, OBE, and Dr. Alex Clark. Nikki, some of you may already know from our podcast before, especially if you've listened to our episode on mentoring, which we actually released for our Christmas special two years ago. Can you believe that was two years ago? I know. Again, going back to our Christmas specials. I know, it's crazy. And yeah, it almost also feels like a whole nother world away at the same time. Absolutely. So, for those of you who don't know, Nikki was the founder of the Centre for Appearance Research alongside James Partridge, OBE, and was a co-director of CAR up until a couple of years ago when she retired. Nikki was part of a working party on face transplantation by the Royal College of Surgeons in England and has continued to contribute knowledge and efforts on this topic throughout her career. And then we have Dr Alex Clark, who is a visiting professor at CAR and a clinical psychologist. Alex worked at the Royal Free College in London in the Department of Plastic Surgery and we'll leave Alex to discuss how she got involved in the topic of facial transplants. Nice, I like the elusiveness there. (laughs) So yeah, let's hear from them both. Brilliant. Hi Nikki and Alex, it's great to have you both on Appearance Married to the podcast again. And so this time the topic that we'll be discussing is face transplants and I'm really intrigued to see and hear about how your input went with face transplants. So Alex, I firstly want to start with you. How did your input with face transplants start? And yeah, if you'd like to explain that. Okay, so I've been working with the charity Changing Faces for about five years where I met Nikki. Um, And I decided to uh, move on from there and think about going back to the NHS after many years away. And and I was lucky to get a new job that had been established at the Royal Free Hospital in London, which was a psychologist working within their plastic surgery unit, which was actually a dream job for me to go and actually work with surgeons, but work with people actually having um, reconstructive surgery. And I hadn't been in there very long before I was talking to one of the four plastic surgeons, who's a chap called Peter Butler, and he said, I'm interested in uh, face transplants. Can you help? And of course, I'd never heard of a face transplant, nor had anyone else really at that time. It was a new idea. Um, And he was interested in developing that. 
as a treatment for panfacial burns. And so my amid- I was so surprised and quite shocked, of course. I remember thinking, just my luck. Here I am. I got a job I'm really interested in. And now here's somebody who wants to do something slightly outrageous, really. Um, because, of course, I've been working with James Partridge and my model was very much that people with an unusual appearance, um, your support for them is through um, social skills, building on Nikki's work mm-hmm. and allowing them to live a really positive life, no matter what they look like. And that was so the idea that you would want to operate on them and change their appearance seemed very bizarre. But as I talked to Peter, I realised, A, that he was serious, and B, that he was thinking about this, but he really was trying to put a psychologist right at the heart of the work that was going on, um, uh, because he could he could see that there were, a, you know, huge psychological issues around this, and he really wanted to understand them and for help as he moved this forward. And I thought, well, you know, he's clearly going to do it. He's either going to do it badly without any psychology or I can help him to do it as well as I think that we can do it and I wrote a list of all the things I thought would be important and all the things that we already knew about which was a very short list and a huge list of all the things that we'd have to find out about if it was going to go anywhere Um, and I can remember thinking right at the start would anyone donate a face because if you've got no donors of facial tissue you can stop now because there's nothing you can do about it. So that has to be one of the first things that we establish. But as part of all this and just beginning to think about it, Peter went public. He thought there should be a general discussion about this. And he spoke about it at a big international conference. And there was a huge reaction to it, understandably. And people like James Partridge, very anti it. The um, popular press produced horrible things or sort of saying, well, you know, James's picture with the face of Steve McQueen superimposed on top of it, that sort of thing, really unhelpful. Um, And eventually the Royal College of Surgeons decided to have a working party to just really think about this and to report on it. And at that point, Nikki came into the picture. And that was really good news from my point of view, because this was somebody that I knew well, who was going to be really rational and sensible um, and just really look at the evidence and what needed to happen as part of the working party, whilst I was trying to do the same as part of the first clinical group in the UK. And as I was saying, we were really adult about it. We treated it very sensibly. We never discussed it. We discussed lots of other things that we were doing, but we we never talked about this. We just developed what we were doing independently from each other. And when the report was published, it was um, like a quality control check. I knew there was someone there who'd spot anything that I might have missed. And it just was always really very, very helpful, but quite an unusual thing for us to be working, having worked as close colleagues before, and pitched by other people as in opposition and potential enemies. Very odd looking back on it, wasn't it, Nikki? It certainly was. Um, it was, uh, I remember also being incredibly relieved that um, Alex was the clinical psychologist um, working in the team that looked like they were going to be the first ones to undertake this process. And so I knew I had absolute confidence that the clinical protocols and the, the guidance that was given within that team was going to be good. But there was also a big concern within the um, working party that I was a part of at the Royal College of Surgeons that 
although Peter Butler's team at the Royal Free, which included Alex, might do it very responsibly, that that wouldn't necessarily happen elsewhere. Um, I'm really fascinated by the fact that you're both close colleagues, um, but that you've got two different end goals here with two different groups, but that they do align, you know, and you feel confident in each other's abilities and that you're going to do the right thing at the end. Mm. Absolutely. And it was so tempting to, to because normally you sort of um, get in touch with Nick and say, look, you know, how are we going to sort out this thing about identity and what people look like? Why? It'd be really nice to talk about it, but actually it was much better to think about those things independently. And we stuck to I'm very proud of how we stuck to it. We didn't cheat. We worked on it independently. And it's, it's all, it has sort of a quality control because of that. But one of the things that was a, a big issue one right from the start, and I know, Jade, you were interested in this, was the how we thought about the ethics. Um, and um, there was an awful lot of people writing and saying, you know, there's, there's no ethical way of doing this because it's never been done before. And therefore, you can't give informed consent. Um, and that seemed to me like... Um, just a recipe for never doing anything new. I thought we got to find a way around that. And what I suggested we did to Peter Butler was to think about ethics like a triangle. So the ethics was um, comprised of, of three really main important areas we needed to know about. And one was the technical side of things, the what the surgeons were doing um, and what the risks were of doing it and how they were actually physically going to do this procedure. And, and it was amazing, actually, because I discovered as part of that that people's anatomy is not the same. And I'd assumed anatomy was the one kind of thing we could rely upon. But actually, no, the facial nerve is different, actually missing in one in a 100 people. So the first thing you had to establish was that the facial nerve was in the right place for both the donor and the recipient. So that was just one aspect of the technical side. Um, and then there was the immunosuppression and the importance of providing immunosuppression, because this is, after all, a transplant procedure like a kidney or a heart. And then there's the whole psychological side. And that included aspects of identity change and the extent to which that would happen. Mm -hmm. um, and that was something that really, really worried people, the idea of walking down the road and seeing the face of um, their relative on somebody new. There was a consent issue. There was people's motivation and expectations. How did we manage there when it had never been done? There was the extent to which they, the concordance with treatment. Could we in any way predict who would take their medication or not post-operatively? What about the cause of injury? A lot of the people who sustained catastrophic facial injuries um, it was because of suicide attempts. Certainly in America, there's a lot of gunshot injuries to the face. Burns to, full thickness burns to the face are fortunately very rare. Um, so that's actually quite a small pool of people. And then you've got to think about the whole of the donor family as well, because normally in this country, we don't know who's donated an organ. But this is such an unusual procedure that it was going to be absolutely clear if you donated a face, if they suddenly did one and you donated a face, those donor and recipient teams could easily um, put themselves together. 
Mm. Um, and both of them had to be comfortable with the press intrusion and huge amount of interest in what was going on, certainly for the, um, the first patient. Then you had to think about the transplant team and the transplant coordinators because they were the ones who got to do the work and actually request facial tissue. How were they going to do that? Were they on board with it? What could we do to support them and their process? So there was a huge amount of work to do, but all of which had to be sort of set out and presented or explored as, you know, a an empirical approach it, it wasn't sort of very pristine research really but we did our best to actually find out the answers to some of those questions and publish as much as we could although that was quite difficult to start with mm-hmm. so that other people could build on it or challenge it or you know suggest things we had missed out and there were some interesting things as part of that because I realised everybody was worrying about everybody else's bit. So if you talked to a surgeon, surgeon said, well, the technical side isn't, you know, it's challenging, but it's not that difficult. But, you know, what are we going to do about immunosuppression? And the immunosuppression people say, oh, it's not going to be very different from actually kidneys or hearts. Um, We can manage that. But what about the psychological side? And I realised, I was saying, look, leave the psychological side to me and manage your bit. If we each do what we know about, We'll we'll get on that much better. But we still ended up with this paradox that the ideal patient for a face transplant is the man who's is is or the person who's managing it very well without having it. Mm. And I think that's to some extent still true. Was a really interesting conclusion, wasn't it, Alex? It, I yeah. think both on on both sides ended up with that because because appearance because Alex and I knew very well that um, as someone's actual appearance and the degree of their disfigurement wasn't a strong correlation at all. There isn't a strong association at all with their actual adjustment. There were all these assumptions around that the that the more severely disfigured you were, the more you were going to benefit from a face transplant. But but we knew well that actually it was going to be the 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 patient's psychology that was going to get them through the many stresses and strains related with this. And and ironically, the more resilient you are, the less likely you are probably to want to undergo um, a face transplant because of all the the risks that go alongside of that. So that that was a really kind of interesting place to get get to and I remember sort of offering that psychology that psychological perspective and have psychological knowledge was a a real eye-opener for them as well that's so interesting as well about like you say the paradox that the the person who was the most suitable for a face transplant was often the person that wouldn't want one or it yeah it wouldn't be something that they would consider so that I, yeah, I've not not really thought about that. That's really interesting. I was wondering, how do you think that these, you know, ethics, but in general, the whole topic of face transplants may have changed or not throughout the years now, maybe in the UK, but also broader, more globally as as a possibility? Mm. I think it's interesting. I, I think a lot of it is down to the balance of benefits and risks. And as knowledge gets better, then, then you would expect that balance to change. So, I think the biggest concern for the um, Royal College of Surgeons expert group was the the risk of failure of the graft. So if you have a face transplant and then it fails, you don't really at the beginning you don't know what the, what the risk is. You don't know how long those grafts are, are likely to last, and the consequences of them not working were were very serious. So 
it was understood that that if the face transplant actually failed, then you'd have to take the transplant off. And then what would you do? You'd either have to go back to grafting with a person's own skin, or you'd have to take the risk of another face transplant from a different donor. But the understanding at that time was that the mechanisms for um, that, that the body uses to reject something that is a, a foreign body, if you like, that comes from, from someone else. Um, they've been sensitized by the first transplant, so they'll be working even harder the second time round to kind of reject the graft. And one of the things that exercised us the most was the was the risks of the immunosuppression that people would have to take. So with any transplantation, you have to take drugs to suppress your immune system if, if the organ or, or skin has come from um, someone else mm-hmm. but the but the side effects of that, that that immunosuppression can be quite serious and they can be for example life shortening so that that people are more prone to catch uh, viruses bugs you know things like that that they're more likely to get minor illnesses and also major illnesses as well so there was the possibility that that if someone was was desperate to have a face transplant um, and they really felt that it was the only way their lives were going to improve, but that, that by taking that, they'd be shortening their life. Mm-hmm. And that might be a decision you'd be prepared to take when you're in a bad place psychologically, um, but may not be a decision that you feel so keen about having taken when you get a bit older and, <laughs> and your life um, quality or your life expectancy has been shortened. Um, and Alex, you'll probably know more about this than me, but um, I think that immunosuppression has got a bit better, but it hasn't got massively better in terms of the um, side effects and things like that. And there are still quite considerable risks involved in that, aren't there? I, there are. And I mean, the um, one of the things about face transplant is you can say, look, it's life enhancing but it's not life-saving. So it's not like a heart transplant, for example, which is life-saving. And many transplants are life-saving. Actually, kidney is not. Kidney, um, because you can manage with um, uh, dialysis, Mm -hmm. falls into the life-enhancing group. But, I mean, it it is no fun living with complex kidney disease. Um, A transplant gives you a much better quality of life. But the, the sort of the weight and the argument on those sides are very different from a face transplant. I agree with Nikki. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's just at the moment with COVID-19, the immunosuppressed group are the, one of the group who are highly at risk and living a much more sheltered life than most of us are. Mm. That's a, yeah, that's a in, interesting current example as well, like you say, with the the pandemic and how that might influence someone's prior decision in a in a current space in in our world but i was also wondering about what role do or could psychologists play alex um in face transplantation teams and kind of in those important points you're mentioning about the impact of immune suppressants or like the psychosocial impact on their lives long term given it's more enhancing yeah i think it's i mean i was very lucky in that the the surgeon who was leading this absolutely understood how important psychology was he he knew and in fact i think probably part of getting the post there to start with and his support for it 
was to do with the fact that he could see the, how important that this might be to face transplantation um, going ahead. I mean, there aren't psychologists everywhere. There are certainly in this country, most of the teams that are working and trying and putting on this together have got psychology very much at the heart of it. Um, and we've made all our protocols and the things that we put to our ethics group in the, which that's all in the public domain. I mean, we don't want to do all this work and then have it secret for some reason. So people can build on what we've done. In other countries, I mean, the French transplant's an interesting example because Elizabeth um, Isabel Dunois had um, a, an acute injury and they operated on that without any chance for any sort of psychological workup. And she was managed very much by the, um, the clinical team there isn't a psychologist in that, but there was a female surgeon who looked after her very closely and, and played a, a lot of the role that the psychology team did at the Royal Free for her. Um, in the US, clearly there are psychologists and they have been involved in the um, programme there. In China, I don't know what happens. I think um, it, it, it partly depends on the group that you are trying to look after. In, in choosing pan-facial burns, the British team um, were looking at patients who'd already had an awful lot of surgery um, via typical um, um, traditional reconstructive routes. Um, and they were looking at the sort of shrinking and tightening of scars as a justification for the transplantation. Unfortunately, there aren't many people like that. Well, fortunately, there aren't many people like that. But that means that you're working with a very small pool. Um, and also, when it came to it, and we tried to look at donors and recipients, because they've had so much surgery already, they had got an awful lot of, I don't understand the blood chemistry of this, but you're trying to match for certain antibodies and antigens and things. And, th and they were just, um, we couldn't get a close enough match because they've had so much work, lots of blood transfusions, all that done before. So it was not a group that actually lent itself particularly well to face plantation. Um, in the US, as I say, where you get the gunshot injuries, um, and they're such devastating injuries with huge functional problems like loss of the nose, loss of the mouth, and so on. Um, transplantation with some of the skeleton um, is, is a more obvious um, immediate treatment. And so they've gone down that line, and a lot of the... Um, the, the USA facial transplants are people who've got those kind of injuries. Interestingly, with a some sort of psychiatric background, clearly, um, but they are doing relatively well. Hmm. I, I would say, I, would have have that, that I think there is a general feeling that this hasn't been the panacea. This is not a huge, wonderful operation. And we've got to roll it out across the NHS for all these people because it's such a fantastic solution. It clearly isn't. It's an absolute operation of last resort um, for a few people who continue to have functional difficulties and real challenges with a facial transplant going ahead. I think the other point about psychological support in teams is is the um, is the need for that psychological support to go on pretty much in perpetuity because um, you've got a big burden of um, adherence to um, a drug regime. Mm -hmm. You've also got with the immunosuppression and um, quite often subsequent procedures. So Isabel Dinois, for example, had lots of subsequent minor procedures more minor procedures to her face to try and kind of improve her smile and, and um, move it up but 
the psychologist is really crucial, I think, in, in supporting that and also things like the lifestyle changes that are needed. So you can't expose yourself to sunlight if you're immunosuppressed. Um, there may be other appearance altering things that are difficult to deal with. So, for example, some immunosuppressive drugs lead to hirsutism. So you get lots of hair on the body that you wouldn't otherwise have had. Um, there's also that kind of risk of rejection and the hypervigilance that goes with it. So people are watching for signs of rejection. And, and what happens in that case is that you get some granulation around the edges of the graft of the, of the scar in the scar. So people are encouraged to watch for signs of change that might indicate that some level of rejection is going on. And also the face isn't going to work, isn't going to be fully mobile. So there's, um, so there might be some some gross movements. People might be able to make some some big movements with the face, but the fine movements are likely to have gone. So, or not be restored anyway. And in terms of a transplant, so there's support with how you adapt your social skills, how you adapt your social routines, and and all those kinds of things. Um, and, and the issues about identity, you know, you may get over the euphoria of the transplant in the early stages, but then you're looking at a face in the mirror that's belonged to someone else. And, and that might be a bit spooky for some people. Um, mm. um, it may be hard to handle. So that there's a whole load of stuff that, that, that carries on for a long time after the transplant. It isn't a kind of one hit wonder. And the psychologist is going to be really key to regular contact for a, a very long period of time. There's so many points there and so many things um, to consider, L lots of things that I didn't even think about. But And this interview has been great because I'm, I'm learning so much myself, I think. Um, and I'm I'm wondering then, so given there's yeah, loads of things prior to the procedure and then a lot more as well afterwards and, yeah, for the lifelong journey of the, the patient, what do you think are important considerations for face transplants? in the future and going forward then? Sure. Um, I think we we need to encourage people to, and, and as a researcher, I'm, I'm going to obviously go for the research angle. We, we really don't yet understand. Um, we don't have enough data to help us understand what people's responses are to face transplant. Mm -hmm. And although the numbers of transplantations haven't been huge, they haven't been assessed in the same way that the data that is available is very very scant and, and the data that is there is all used using different measures it's the same old problem as we get in many areas of psychology yeah. so some kind of collaborative effort to have a core set of measures that that could be used to to assess um, people's adjustment and and the roller coaster of dealing with it afterwards would be really helpful in moving understanding forwards. I, I don't feel yet that there's a critical body of evidence that we can use to inform um, our approach to face transplants in future. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think I'd support that. I think actually that approach is much better for hand transplants. I think there is a central registry um, I, I don't think I'm making this up. Um, so that there is a, a much better sort of body of data about exactly, um, 
you know, it, what Nikki's talking about, certainly the physical side of things. Um, I'm not so sure that that's true of the psychological side of things, but that sort of principle of really following people closely would be very important. I, I, my impression is that people were rather hopeful for um, other technologies that um, certainly Peter Butler at the time thought this was an interim procedure and that actually it would, it would be tissue re-engineering that really moved this area forward. Um, and whilst we're seeing that for um, some areas with things like 3D printing and so on of different polymer bases that tissue can grow into, I'm not sure that this has really advanced um, the facial side of things as much as people thought it might do, or certainly not as quickly as people thought it might do. And the other side of thing, of course, is prevention of these things. I mean, it's uh, these are horrible injuries that this is appropriate for, but all of them, I think, on the list are avoidable injuries. And uh, it is, you know, we, we tend to overlook in things like burns, um, the, the things that, that actually have made a huge impact, like smoke alarms and all the rest of it. Um, and I, I'm very much as a health psychologist interested in the prevention side of um, psychological factors. Um, and we shouldn't overlook that in the drama of what can be done when we get right the other end. Hmm. Yeah, when I was reading up about it, I read a lot of um, like some of them were, yeah, like you say, in the US gunshot related wounds that link to, to suicide. And obviously that is an important point about trying to prevent some things like that initially. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I was just saying this has been really great conversation. And I want to say thank you both for your time. I've loved hearing... You know that you both worked on this in two separate approaches but you both have very overlapping thoughts and opinions and it's great to, to hear them both so thank you once again so we're a, we're a model for what how psychologists can work when the world is trying pitching them as um on opposite sides yeah i think I think it pulled us closer, didn't it, Alex? It we did. were closer before and closer afterwards. And uh, yes. it was certainly the most intellectually challenging and interesting um, area of debate I think I've got involved with in my whole career. So, so thanks for the interest in it, Jade. Oh, yeah. no, thank you. Wonderful. That was so interesting. I feel like I've learned so much through this episode. Jade, what were your thoughts? Yeah, for sure. I actually think I said interesting like a million times, <laughs> but it really is though. So I'm justified in that. And one thing, well, there's a lot of things that I took away from this, but what I found that was quite surprising throughout this episode is that face transplants is still in its infancy. This topic only really started in this millennium and there is still so much to really learn here. And as Alex said, face transplants are mainly life enhancing and not life saving, which I think speaks a lot to society's influence and the emphasis it places on appearance, which goes even beyond face transplants and what we know about research around body image and broader. Right, we just have so much more to learn about this topic. I also really enjoyed hearing about, even though they were both working on different teams with different, or slightly different end goals at least, both had similar results without um, without conferring. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I think that's what we call in research high inter-rater reliability there. <laughs> Just a technical term. Um, and I think it's great that they continue to be really good friends as well as amazing working professionals in their own right and on on that kind of positive note I think we should wrap up this episode yes I think so too Jade so 
Before we do, a very special thank you to our guests, Faye, Nikki and Alex. Indeed. And another big special thank you to you, the listeners, for joining us once again on another episode. Please don't forget to like and subscribe. It helps other people find us and subscribing helps you to know when another monthly episode comes out. Exactly. So join us next time when we will be having our Christmas episode. I, yeah, I'm so excited. And best believe I will be wearing a Christmas hat, itch or no itch, and slippers <laughs> and everything else that I can do, no matter where we're recording. <laughs> I know, hopefully in person, but even if it's via Zoom, the Christmas outfit is going to be on. The spirit will be there nonetheless. The spirit Definitely. will be there, absolutely. Love it. See ya. Bye. <laughs>